we're not asking you to fundamentally change what you need to do as a human being. But I think that if we all take on a mindset of making better choices throughout all our decisions, then it can sort of shape also who we are sort of as as people collectively. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately, how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. Today's episode is with Indre Rockefeller, who is the co-founder of Paravel, an industry-leading sustainable travel lifestyle brand. Before launching Paravel, Indre had a very interesting career. She actually started out being Anna Wintour's first ever assistant at Vogue, and then she went on to work at several impressive companies like Moto Operandi and Del Pozo. On this episode, we get into Indre's love of ballet at an early age and how it led her to a career in the fashion industry, how one trip entirely changed her perspective, which led her to make sustainability the number one priority for her brand, how she pivoted during COVID-19 amid the travel bans, why an MBA is not necessary to launch a successful business, how identifying her mission changed her as a leader, why a narrow scope is actually liberating. And lastly, we get into why the key to success is simply the willingness to figure things out as you go. So with that, let's get into this week's episode with Indre Rockefeller. Thank you so much for coming on the Active Ingredient Podcast. I'm so excited to get into your story and just kind of get your play-by-play of how we got to Paravel. Thank you so much for your interest. Can't wait to chat. (laughs) Um, I always kick off every episode asking the guest what they were like as a kid that they remember. Or if you don't remember what your parents say about you, like kind of personality traits or anything that you think are still, if you still have those traits that are in what you're doing in your day-to-day today. Um, And just, yeah, give me a play-by-play of what little Indre was like. Yeah. And I love that you asked this question, partly because it makes me go back and think and sort of connect the dots. But also now as a mother of young children, I'm realizing that some of the traits they display now, you know, are things that they'll have with them for the rest of their lives too. So it's fun on both ends. But when I go back and think about young Indre, it was, I was so passion driven from such an early age. And I think that's something that's been consistent through my whole career. I was obsessed with ballet and it ended up being something I eventually became a professional ballet dancer for a few years. Um, And it was sort of really shaped who I was. And uh, even as a five-year-old, I would show up when my parents were having dinner parties after I'd been sort of put to bed, I would show up with like a record, which dates me, uh, of Swan Lake (laughs) and a tutu. I'd be like, I'm ready for my performance. I'm ready to perform. And I was actually shy, except when it came to performing, because I took it very seriously. And um, when I was five, I went to go see sort of my first uh, nutcracker. And I told my parents then and there that I would was going to become 
a ballerina. And that's something that uh, stayed with me forever. This idea of following something you love doing, and it can take you on all these circuitous routes, but really following that passion. And so I ended up, uh, it really shaped who I was. It's my first love. It was my first profession. Um, And I guess that showed up early on. I love that. And I'm curious to kind of dive deeper in the fact that you were shy, but when dancing, like you felt like you were in your zone. Do you feel that way now? Like, do you still feel like you're shy, but then when you're talking about your business or when you're talking about like the thing that you're super passionate about, that it kind of shifts? Yeah. I find that there, it depends on what environment I'm in. Um, I find that when I'm talking about something that I care about, when I am, whether it's sort of my business or or something I'm interested in, uh, that I sort of can't be held back. Uh, but usually it's not so much shyness now. I think it's sort of graduated to, I'm more of a listener um, because if I'm in an unfamiliar environment or if I'm in a place where I don't know the subject matter as well. So I sort of sit back and I'm a listener and an absorber. But when it's something that I care a lot about, then I'm a very active participant. I love it. Okay. So walk me through your career journey. What did you think that you wanted to be? Um, were you surrounded by like very entrepreneurial people that kind of got you to this point of starting Paraval? Like walk me through that whole journey, your ballet journey um, yeah. through editorial and where we are now. Yeah. So um, as I said, I, when I was five, I declared <laughs> my first career path, which ended up being accurate. That's um, the youngest. So the last person I had on was seven and I was like, damn, okay. that's pretty crazy. So now you just you just got the youngest award. Yeah. Thank you. It's not my current job, but I did hold that job yeah. for a while, so it counts. Um, so I, growing up, was, very, as I mentioned, very serious about ballet. I sort of was leaving school and high school early every day to train professionally. And I deferred college to start dancing professionally um, with Washington Ballet. Then I left ballet to start uh, college. I did my freshman year at Princeton, left, uh, took a year off to dance at the Finnish National Ballet in Helsinki, uh, then went back to finish up, got my art history degree uh, at Princeton, then left and went back into ballet and sort of had about a five-year run until uh, a herniated disc in my back took me out of that career path. So as you can tell from the outset, it's it's sort of all over the place. My but ballet is like your home base or had been your home, the home, your home base. base. And, and it framed a lot of how I approach the world, but everything in my life is, it, nothing is a straight line. I think a lot of it is just uh, following instincts and following passion. And that you know, shows up later in my entrepreneurial journey. So when I was finally out of ballet, um, I had always been interested in the fashion industry and that interest really began through ballet also. It was an introduction through the costume ateliers. And, you know, for some of these classical ballets, the work, this artisan handcrafted work that happens in the costume ateliers, making a tutu requires some of these these ballets requires hundreds of hours of, of beautiful, like traditional seamstress work and going to the fittings. I just fell in love with this idea of this costume, this piece of article of clothing that you put on could transform and help you become a different character. And I used to just sort of try and hang around the uh, costume atelier as much as I could, absorbing and watching. And that was really my first introduction into the transformative nature of, of fashion, but also the, the beautiful craft element of, of creating um, things that we wear. And so after, my, uh, after the injury took me out um, of my 
ballet path, I ended up um, with a job at Vogue. So I was Anna Winter's first assistant. Um, and that was a wonderful introduction to the fashion industry. And um, I mean, boot camp, I was, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, boot camp. But, but also, you know, it really taught me what I really admired about her is that she has this eye for design, of course, um, unparalleled but also a head for business and sort of seeing that dichotomy and the way she worked really inspired me to want to um, expand my toolkit on the business side of the equation. And I knew that I wanted to come back into the fashion and creative industries, but that I wanted to have this toolkit that would give me more versatility and whatever I came back in. So mm-hmm. I decided to go get my MBA uh, which I guess is not the, again a circuitous route, but I thought you know if I can get this foundational skill set, then I can come back. Um, but I really was interested in the entrepreneurial side of the equation. I had this. Like, did you go in knowing bug. that you wanted to start something? I I knew that I had that bug in me, but I didn't want to start something just to start something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose Stanford because they have a wonderful entrepreneurial program, and and obviously Silicon Valley is an inspiring place for uh, creative thinkers. So mm-hmm. I did my MBA there. Um, turns out the weather is great too. So that was <laughs> a, 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 a nice plus. plus. And yeah, exactly. And I came back um and I joined Mode Operandi, where I became the GMM and creative director of Trunk Show. So really was a great way to experience a late stage start or a later stage fast growing startup um, and sort of grow with the company and experience the fashion side of the equation, the storytelling side of the equation. You know, I was working a lot directly with designers, helping identify talent, but also helping them grow their business within the platform. So working, you know, with marketing and planning and all these cross-functional roles that used both my creative instincts, but also some of the tools that I had learned at business school. So that was a great way to combine that. Um, From there, I was asked to join um, Del Pozo, which was a Spanish fashion luxury brand. And I became Mm -hmm. their US president. Um, And I had the honor of working very closely with Josep Font, who at the time was the creative director of uh, and the designer of Del Pozo and really um, made it the sort of magical... um, thing that it was. And I think we really connected deeply, not only professionally, but also personally over this love of fashion as an art form. And a lot of the, you know, we you know, love of ballet and, and we would go see ballet together and that sort of connected back, right? This almost, some of his pieces were so beautiful that they were works of art and um, we could really uh, connect on that. And it was a wonderful way for me to also see the brand side. I had seen the editorial side, the retail side, but also live the brand side and how to storytell um, from a single brand's point of view. And that before we get job, before we get e- even into like a further thing, I want to just like take a moment because I feel like we're removing ourselves from the ballet part of things, and I want to like stay there for just a second because yes. I feel like those type of injuries really like this. This podcast is really about like mindset and helping people yeah. kind of like identify the questions to ask themselves when they're in those like in between moments or when they're faced with adversity or when we're, when they're kind of like in this in between part of life. And I feel like one of those things, like an injury that is, you thought you were going to be doing ballet for forever. Um, what was your thought process? And then how did you identify that fashion was that route that you wanted to go down? Because obviously like the next, the next path that you did kind of after that were in the fashion realm. So what was like the first thing, the ballet yeah. costume design was definitely one of it, but like, talk to me about just like the identity part of coming to yeah. terms with the fact that you couldn't actually perform anymore and then transitioning into the fashion space. So that's actually a great place to pause because it is something that I often just glide over when telling my story, but it was a very 
uh, important moment in my life. And there are a few moments in my life, actually, speaking of these junctures, where I had to choose between dance and something else. And the last time when I finally left, it wasn't my choice. But, you know, thinking about the time where I left ballet the first time to go to college. Then I then I took a break and then I went back. And these moments were not easy. Like, oh, now I dance. Now I go back to college. Now I, you know, both of them felt like crossroads. And it's and in dance, traditionally in ballet, um, you dance when you're younger. You don't, you go to college later or you put that off. That's it's something not that you don't usually do um, in conjunction with each other. You don't usually go to college and then dance professionally. Some people are able to do that, but, but really tradi- the traditional path is very much um, dancing and then sort of evaluating what you want to do with your education. Um, and I remember even growing up in, in high school, having teachers say, you know, okay, uh, you are, um, you should be in, in focusing on your ballet career. Why are you even talking about college? College is not, you're not on the college track. You're on the ballet track, you know, and then having academic teachers at school being like, why would you not be applying to colleges, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as an 18 year old, you have two very important things in your life that are very much seem to be at odds. And, um, the, those junctures kept happening and those were difficult decisions each time. And, you know, you watch, especially in ballet, I remember watching someone get injured my first year as a professional dancer and um, having their career potentially ripped away from them right under their noses, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that feeling of it being so... Um, uh, ephemeral, right? That your career can be taken away in a moment. Uh, I think Any really career really that like, like physicality is so physicality. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's and so I scary. remember thinking, yeah. And I remember being really shaken by that, by watching that from the sidelines and thinking, I think that's what ultimately drove me to want to get a degree. I don't know why. I can't really explain that in retrospect because I could have, you know, you, I've seen yeah. so many stories of dancers doing that later. But I think it was something around the security of something that could be taken away, um, which in my 18-year-old mind was that that was, that was something to latch on to. And then once I started in did my freshman year, it wasn't something abstract anymore. It was something that I loved. You know, I had found, I'd had a wonderful experience and I knew that I wanted to finish it up. So then I sort of had both a foot in both doors and they were both things that I loved. So then it was about this slightly unusual bouncing back and forth. Um, But I think things in the abstract are always much more confusing and, and not even confusing, but intimidating yeah. um, when you're making these decisions, the abstract. So the final time when I got injured, I think by then, even though it sounds like it would probably be the most traumatic of those junctures, it actually ended up being the least because it was more of those decisions early on when I felt like it was a decision I'd have to live with. This was kind forever. of like made for you this decision was made for me. And I already had had my foot in these other doors and other worlds. And I had loved, I had majored in art history and I had loved that. Right. And I had, I had a, a, a whole world that existed outside of it that, so it didn't feel like my identity, identity was take, being taken away the way it did the first time around, even the second time around, because I had been a dancer and I, and by then, I had sort of a foot in two worlds and um, that felt like it had been made for me. I was not something I would have to live with regrets. And I ended up taking a career path 
I don't know, intentionally or not, but something that also was very intensive. It was a world that was, I had to learn a lot about. It was an intense job. It was busy. It filled me. So I went, I, I sort of went from um, one all-encompassing world into another. And I never really had uh, much time to even think uh, because I was learning and absorbing Mm -hmm. so much about the new world I was in and learning about fashion and and being exposed to so much and just sort of being a sponge that it it only, it took me sort of a year before I realized I'd really come to terms with that. And by then I had, I was excited about what I was learning about. So you held all these incredible roles within the fashion industry, kind of got to see the business side of it and the creative side of it. At what point did you start like really kind of listening to that itch to start something on your own? Um, and how long were you thinking about it before you actually took your first steps? So it, you know, Paravel is obviously in the travel space and I was traveling for the last few jobs I'd had in the fashion industry. I was traveling all the time. I was living out of suitcases. I was... Um, very much the opposite of now, um, which was just always on the go. And I realized for, it, it really was this abstract notion in the back of my head for a year, right? That I don't feel passionate about almost any travel brand, but I was busy with, with uh, the jobs that I had and the travel I was doing, but I loved travel so much. It shaped my worldview. Um, I come from a family that's traveled a lot. I'm sort of first generation here. My parents um, traveled a lot with us when we were young. So it was something that was so ingrained in me. Um, And I I kept thinking, well, I I was putting together, you know, bits and pieces here, you know, something from Muji, something from a Paris flea market, some, you know, wheeled bag that I didn't really care much about. And it felt like because I was living out of a suitcase, there was always some like half packed or half unpacked mm-hmm. suitcase in my, in my closet or in my bedroom that, um, it seemed like be- uh, that there was an opportunity to build something that was more reflective of the way I saw people traveling and the values that people had, uh, that were emerging within, within the travel space. And of course, this was around the same time that people that, you know, Instagram was on the rise and people were talking about, um, you know, the early conversation around sustainability was starting. And there was a lot of things where it felt like the travel goods industry was very much siloed from a lot of things that were happening in travel in general. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I, I thought that it'd be great to have a brand that sort of connected the joys of travel with the joy, you know, the idea of packing. When you first start packing, a lot of it, I mean, I don't even remember at this point. It's been so long, but <laughs> we're going to get you know, to that, that by idea. the way. We need to talk about like the fact that travel is like a, on major pause, but exactly. But you know, when you think about travel, the last time you traveled for something you were excited about and you start pulling those pieces in, let's say you're traveling for a, va- a vacation and you pull that sun hat out and you're like, oh, I'm going to sit by the beach and I'm going to have a cocktail and I'm going to have my feet up and I'm going to read a book. And you know, you start imagining this world. Mm-hmm. And for me, those those moments are are also connected with the everyday experiences of travel. So those are your commute into work, your quick getaway for the weekend, uh, an overnight trip. It can be even exploring Central Park if you're a mm-hmm. New Yorker, right? It's just 
it's also this mindset, right, of curiosity and exploration. And that's sort of this mindset that I felt I was living in at the time that I wanted a brand that reflected that um, in the early days. So at what, like, were you currently working for um, Del Pozo? Where, at what point did you like first start thinking about it? And then I really like to like get into like the nitty gritty on like idea to execution. So yeah, yeah, at what point did you have, like you, you put this idea together, you understood that there was a space for a brand like this that didn't exist. What were those first steps? Like what were, what was your process? Like, did you start taking meetings? Did you like, did you have the name? Like, give me, give me the whole playback plan. So all everything sort of started official after I left El Pozo, I knew that I wanted to do something on my own. I feel like I felt like I had experienced enough sides of the industry that I was ready to learn, uh, take the lessons I had learned and make my own mistakes in a way. So it's not that I walked out with a business plan and an mm-hmm. idea and a name. It's I walked out with the desire to build a company of my own. And that the work started after that. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, the name is something that I had had the idea for that name in business school and I, not for any company specifically, it was just a word that I liked that I I thought, you know, maybe one day it just seemed like a, any brand, like a a fun brand could be created out of it. It could have Mm -hmm. been in whatever category. Um, But really this idea of travel just kept sitting with me um, and I was still traveling and looking around now more critically at the offering, starting to understand the landscape a bit more, starting to talk to uh, friends and family and, and people who I respected to sort of get a lay of the land. Um, a lot of it was sort of just going into absorbing mode and understanding what it means to launch a business. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, you had an MBA, so it must've been easy, but I don't think there's anything that can really prepare you for launching Mm -hmm. a business. I don't think you need an MBA. I don't think you need, there's no specific thing you need. Talk to me Um, about that. I just think it's, I feel like a lot of people say it's worth it for the network, but not necessarily for the actual tools and skill sets. Yeah. You know, some of my best friends in the world are from from my business school experience. And, and we were all, we were all the people who came from very non-traditional backgrounds. So mm-hmm. we sort of huddled together and taught Love ourselves that. a lot of things. Um, so I would say that, um, the, yes, the network, but, but I think that ultimately maybe what it did give me is the confidence and that's not, you know, prob- I, there's probably there are a lot of places where people gain that confidence mm-hmm. and work experience and whatnot. But I think for me personally, it gave me confidence to pursue something on my own that maybe I would have been more intimidated to to take that plunge without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I don't believe that you need that. I, I don't believe there are any credentials that you need uh, to start your own business. I think it's about a uh, passion for what you're doing and a an a willingness to figure things out as you go because yeah. there's still every day I'm still figuring things out as I go. And there's nothing that can, there's no roadmap to prepare me. Um, even people who have started businesses before can advise my co-founder and I use each other as our greatest resource to bounce ideas off. We're always asking people for advice and our investors are helpful and other um, founders are invest are help are helpful. But in the end, sometimes you just have to make gut decisions based off of what you believe you're building. Um, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. 
do you feel like since you've had it, that that gut instinct has gotten stronger or do you feel like you like test it more? Like, do you feel the more and more that you've gone with it, that it kind of expands that confidence and then you're able to take even riskier moves or... Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do. I mean, certainly we've made, and I've made plenty of mistakes. Um, but I, what I think I've learned in the process is that only when it's your own business and, and this is, you know, applies to my co-founder and I, cause we make a lot of these decisions together, um, that you ultimately, uh, live and die by this. You know, if it works, if it works, if it doesn't, it doesn't, but it's, it, it's driven by your own, it's shaped by who you are in a way. So the gut decisions are very much intertwined with a lot of the foundational structure of the business, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, because it's a reflection of who you are when you're a young business. Now, of course, as you scale and more people are brought on, I welcome other people's um, point of view and their own instincts. And and that sort of all follows. And that's Mm -hmm. wonderful when you get to the point where you can hire people and have their instincts take over. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the end, in the early days, you know, my co-founder, my instincts were all we sort of had based on what we wanted to build. So what was, what was your thought in the beginning? Like, what did you envision for Paraval? What, what were your, like, what was your brand ethos then? And is it the same as it is today? Yes. Um, that's sort of, it's an evolution. I would say it's always evolving. So it was really fundamentally about providing better choices to the consumer. And that has that same philosophy applies today as much as it did the first day, but it has very much, we've focused and narrowed down what we can, what we, what we ourselves work on every day. And a lot of that has to do with sustainability now and providing the best choices we can to our consumer around Mm -hmm. sort of a well-made, well-priced, functional, sustainable product. And beautiful. Um, and beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but in the early days, that was very much the idea too, right? It, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're um, in the travel goods space. But how do you make it more beautiful, more functional, more resilient, more lightweight, and better priced and sort of create um, a brand that people want to connect with on a deeper level, not be a means to an end. And travel, a lot of the times, your travel goods get you from point A to point B. And maybe you have a wheeled luggage from someone, but would you really... I mean, at least I felt this way. There was no brand I could point to be like, oh, I want a handbag from that brand. Or I want to carry a fanny pack or a backpack. I want to be part of that brand's universe in everything I do. Um, Instead, it was like these utilitarian pieces for me that got me from point A to point B. And we set out, we took a different approach to that saying travel is almost a daily occurrence for people. Travel is everything and everywhere and it's a state of mind. And so how do we build products around that uh, as opposed to being a workhorse workhorse piece exclusively? Mm -hmm. So what what were your first products? So we launched with a whole system. So for us, it was important that we weren't, uh, we didn't use the traditional direct-to-consumer model of, you know, one product Mm -hmm. um, exclusively. We really believed in sort of a lifestyle brand from the outset. So we had 10 products. Uh, We did not have wheeled luggage in the beginning. And we did that intentionally because we wanted to earn our customers' trust. We knew that that was going to be an important skew for us because wheeled luggage is part of travel. But we first wanted to build this idea of travel in these everyday moments and 
these uh, occurrences that mm-hmm. happen, not like I mentioned, you know, your yeah. commute into work, your weekend trip, um, your week long getaway, the wedding, um, but created in, in sort of timeless silhouettes in beautiful material and natural materials. We were doing a lot of cotton canvas and um, uh, cotton trimmed with leather. Uh, so, really, things that uh, materials that had been used for ages, you know, cotton was used in, I love, you know, thinking about like cotton being used in sail costs and explorers tents and all these things, right. Yeah. That sort of stand the test of time and have this, um, feeling that it could be used for generations to come. Um, and quality was really important to us. So those were the original foundational principles. And then from there, we added on wheeled luggage later because we, had earned our customers' respect. We had they knew our quality. They knew what we stood for. And by the time we launched wheeled luggage, we could we we could launch like the most sustainable piece of wheeled luggage possible. We built it from the ground up to be sort of everything. So was that was that the first sustainable piece that you that you added? So the sustainability store it it was the first built from the ground up. We okay. had also launched negative nylon, which is all these nylon, this nylon collection made from re, uh, post-consumer recycled plastic water bottles. Um, but we had been, it was the first thing we started working on. It just took the longest to launch. Right. So we did launch the the sort of negative nylon beforehand. But I had this sort of transformative trip that I took to Antarctica that I talk about all the time that was in very early 2018. And I was lucky enough to be on a two-week polar expedition with the Nature Conservancy. And I was on board with climate scientists, marine biologists, glaciologists, and being able to explore such a pristine part of the world, such a rare part of the world with from the lens of uh, climate really sort of shook me in a way to the core. And I had always been an environmentalist. I practiced that in my personal life. Um, but this and, and, uh, sustainability had always been something that was on our work in progress list at Paramount. Mm-hmm. We had, as I mentioned, started with natural materials and we're working on developing more advanced sustainable materials. But, you know, when it's number two on your to-do list and you're a startup, you never get to number two when you're mm-hmm. a startup because you're putting out fires and you're trying to get to number one, basically yep. that's how it is. So, um, for us, I when I got back from that trip, we didn't have any cell service for that period of time. And I, my first call back when I got my service back in um, Argentina was to my co-founder, and we had this conversation about removing everything else from our to-do list and making sustainability the lens, the priority, not a priority, but the priority. And so, a lot of things that had been in the works, we just decided to prioritized and everything from that moment on was looked through the lens of sustainability. So it wasn't about, oh, let's launch an eco collection or a limited edition cap- capsule or or add in some components. It was from this moment on, everything we put out will be either we have to redo our supply chain if it already exists, or we will build from the ground up to be as sustainable as possible. So at the time we had wheeled luggage that was about 80% done in development. And we scrapped it and started over. And we said, okay, that's incredible. it's not good enough. It's not there in terms of what we want to put out into the world. Yes, it has a few components here there, but we're going to build it from the ground up. So it's the recycled aluminum. It's the recycled polycarbonate. It's the yeah. vegan leather trim. It's the lining. It's the zip, literally down to the zipper. Um, so okay, I want to was- get into, because I feel like 
everyone that, I mean, if anyone that's listening that has an actual product, every single person is trying to move into sustainability. It's crazy that you were able to like scrap an actual prototype that you had at 80% and literally start from scratch, you know, like that's, that's the goal for a lot of people. I've heard a lot of companies transition and, you know, like they're currently at like 70, 70% sustainable materials or 80% trying to reach to like by 2022, whatever. Like, how did you actually execute on that? And like, I know that your, your goal is to be 100% sustainable by 2021, right? Um, what were those like actual, actual, like actionable steps? Like how did you identify what the supply chain was going to look like? How did you figure out what materials to use all of those things? Cause any, like, it sounds like an, an amazing idea and everyone would choose to be sustainable if they can. But the truth is, is that the resources aren't as readily available as everything else is. So yeah. yeah so it's, I think much, much like we were talking about before where nothing really can prepare you for entrepreneurship. It's the same. This is a great example where having an MBA does not matter one iota when it comes to something that's so meaningful for the business, right? So this is about self-education and determination. And so we just started pushing on every single supplier of every single component part. So to take a step back, we decided to start with materials. Now that's not the only place that you can be sustainable, um, but that was the first place that we turned. So we're like, okay, we're going to do materials. So Mm -hmm. every single component part of every bag we can reevaluate. So we have a supplier of zippers, you know, um, do you offer a sustainable zipper? Turns out there's a lot of, and if the, if you don't, um, thank you very much. And we try to find another one who does. Now, usually they're not going to recommend someone else, but right. uh, start asking around. Right. Uh, and turns out there usually is an alternative if you push enough. Right. So when we were making our wheeled luggage, we said, okay, we want, we have aluminum, Um, we have these aircraft grade aluminum handles and some aluminum details. We're like, okay, do you have recycled aluminum? And they're like, yes, but we can give you virgin aluminum. We're like, no, no, we want recycled. They're like, uh, you know, and when when we ask, like, is it going to be just as strong, just as resilient? Yes, it is. But, you know, traditionally people don't want that. And Mm -hmm. so we're like, we have to tell them that we do. And so it it was going through that process with every single supplier. Um, it is something that took a lot of time. It I was going to say, how long did that take? Because I feel like a lot of businesses may not have the the time and money to put into it to like make that call like right at one moment and then decide moving forward that everything is going to be sustainable. So, so yeah, how long? So did that all take? of all of production takes a long time, regardless of what you are producing, what your priorities yeah. are. So if you're looking for a zipper, it's still going to take you time to find you know, the zipper that is strong enough and has the right look and, and uh, you know, pick the zipper tape color for your bag. So all of, I, I'm a firm believer that it's a function, the, the function of caring has a lot to do with the end result versus the function of price. So for example, people, you know, there's a uh, quality is another example. And I believe the sustainability is the same where I believe that if you care enough and you push enough, you can pay the same amount and get higher quality from the same manufacturer because you go back and say, the um, stitching here is off and I care, or the way this is attached here isn't, there's an alternate way to do this. So really working through and working closely with your factories and your suppliers, as opposed to just outsourcing it Mm -hmm. is, I think, a huge 
hugely important part of the equation. And that doesn't always cost more money. It costs more time. Right. But if you prioritize and make that the priority, it's more achievable. Yeah. Um, I also think that since we launched, so we started working on this probably five years ago. It's actually today is our four-year anniversary from oh launch. Um, Congratulations. Happy birthday. Like dog years. Um, <laughs> so you know, since we launched the amount of sustainable suppliers and sustainable materials widely available has just exploded. It is so energizing to see that shift. So I firmly believe that for anyone looking to start a business or shift their business towards sustainability, that has become infinitely easier. It's just sometimes it takes one more step of research or one more person to talk to, but those suppliers are out there for almost every component part in a way that they weren't uh, even five years ago. That's refreshing to and hear. So That's very refreshing. It does really it, does is it getting, cost a lot more? Like is cost really a thing? Depends. Cost is always a thing for us. We, we want to keep our prices where they are. We When we were transitioning from to be have sustainability, the primary focus of our brand, we did not want to raise the prices. And we were refused to raise the prices because we did not want to train the consumer that they ha- that that's a sacrifice that they have to make. Because so in our world, if we can provide products that's just as beautiful, just as functional, but also sustainable, why wouldn't you choose that? So for people for whom it's a priority, they would come to us. For people who it's a nice to have, then choose us. We're exactly. not making you that's pay so more. Genius. We're not making you sacrifice on design. So that's why when we were looking for suppliers, we had to find suppliers that would work within our margin structure. Wow. It's so genius. And I feel like that is a big hurdle that the sustainability movement faces. So that a lot of people think that in order to have the sustainable and still aesthetically pleasing option, then you have to like upcharge by like, I don't know, crazy percentages, you know, like... Exactly. And that was a firm, that's a firm belief for us at Paravel. It's a firm belief for me personally is to try and, you know, promote this idea of sustainability as something that is achievable. And sometimes it's just about digging beneath the surface. Uh, and how can we help people transition into that mindset? And that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. That doesn't mean you need a gold star every time or you need to uh, people don't need to be shamed for, um, if they don't reach perfect, there is no such thing as perfect. We're all carbon emitting creatures. Here we Mm -hmm. are, you know, eating food and getting dressed and and existing. So that's not, it's not this mindset of perfect or imperfect. It's really just about making better choices along the way. And what can you do as an individual that will do that? And yes, sometimes it may seem like those actions are insignificant on an individual level, but in the aggregate, that can make a huge impact. And most importantly, they can sway, consumer demand sways the decisions of larger businesses. So if there's a demand for it, if you're a huge multinational corporation and you see a surge in demand for sustainable product, you're going to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, Even if that's not their core value, they will listen. And that's how I believe as consumers, we have power to change
What are your thoughts on just travel overall? I mean, obviously, like every time that you get on a plane, you're contributing crazy emissions. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts as the founder of a, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you would call it a luggage company, but obviously like a company that is rooted in travel on how you kind of like try to educate your consumer on that front as well. Um, yes. Just because I think it is obviously like the, the bigger picture um, yeah. when it comes so, to... That's a great, you know, that's a question we get a lot. And I actually just started uh, about a month or so ago, I started a series on Instagram called Eco Chats that I answer people's questions about this, these sort of topics. And the last one that we did was on this, like how does travel more sustainably? And then there was one for general travel and one for air travel specifically. Mm -hmm. And I'm very aware of the fact that travel, much like fashion, is a contributor to, you know, climate change and global uh, mm-hmm. carbon emissions. Uh, but I'm, I'm also a believer that as human beings, we will continue to get dressed and we will continue to move around the world. And I also think there are positive aspects to travel. It can shape your worldview and open your you know mindset and connect mm-hmm. to different cultures. So there's a lot of positive attributes to it in addition to the fact that it's part of our modern the way we work as, as sort of totally. modern human beings. So there are ways, again, that you can still travel and make better choices. So it's simple things, you know, I mean, it's little things like flying direct and offsetting your carbon emissions. You know, we use gold standard for that. Uh, it's about, you know, when you have certain choices, right? Sometimes you don't have choices and that's okay too. But when you do have a choice, yeah. uh, it's even about like the waste that you produce when you're traveling and thinking about bringing a refillable water bottle, bringing your food in a reusable container. Um, it's about choosing airlines that are uh, making strides towards reducing their own impact. So yeah. there are lots of tools that we can use and they're not going to fund... We're not asking you to fundamentally change what you need to do as a human being but I think that if we all take on a mindset of making better choices throughout all our decisions, then it can sort of shape also who we are sort of as, as people collectively. I think that like, if we can have like literally like action steps, like for everyone listening, maybe we can put it in the show notes after of like, when you're traveling, these are four things that you can easily do every single time just right. to think about. And that can be kind of like the person's first step. Like, I mean, pre-COVID, I was traveling like crazy too. And like, if I had those four things, I'd, I'd for sure do them if they weren't that like difficult. And I mean, bringing your own water bottle is a very easy one next step. Thing exactly. And it's um, a mindset. So I, if you feel comfortable, I would love to talk about the elephant in the room that is that we're not traveling that much right now. Um, and how <laughs> that's affected your business and just like you're as the founder of this company, like how have yeah. you navigated, how have you stayed resilient and how have you guys pivoted throughout all of this? So in that sense, I think we're very fortunate based off of how we were set up as a company. I said from the outset that when we were launching, we wanted to think of travel as a state of mind and a lot of these small instances, daily instances of travel. And that served us really well. We've actually continued to grow year over year through every single month of COVID, which is amazing um, for us. But a lot of that is due to, first of all, our amazing customers who have come to us for, you know, when we launched sort of tote bags, they came to us for tote bags to use for their grocery runs and for their overnight trips and for their diaper bags. And when we launched fanny packs, you know, our belt bag, they came to us to put their, you know, wallet keys, phone sanitizer mask in and are using it for hikes and, 
errands and things like that. And so our backpacks, these uh, people took our, have been buying our packing cubes and using them to organize their drawers and their closets. Um, and those were things that were originally designed to obviously organize your luggage. And they're amazing, by the way, I can't travel without <laughs> them. But since I'm not traveling, I'm also putting my closet stuff in, you know, you can organize and compress and um, put out of season clothes away. And so we have found that, that our amazing community has sort of continued to come to us, which we're so grateful for, for this shift in their life. And yes, they're more interested in uh, our cabana totes than our aviator suitcase, which is for obvious reasons. Um, But we also see a lot of people are sort of gifting the suitcase even for people for future, like it's, it's become popular to sort of, it's become a, we're seeing a big trend in holiday gifting in the aviator suitcase because everyone knows that travel will come back. back. And when it does, it will come back with a vengeance because Mm -hmm. if there's anything people miss aside from other people, it's travel. And so um, we found that being a very ready for it. So smart too. Yeah. Do you find that during this pandemic that more and more people are kind of like waking up to the sustainability factor, having had this pause and seeing how it's affected the environment for the better? Do you think that like it's going to help change consumer behavior faster? Because we were already trending into the sustainability place before COVID. Do you see it from your perspective that it's actually trending faster than was anticipated? I definitely think that's the case. I think it's a combination of having more time to absorb information just because we all have been sort of reading more, watching more, absorbing more, um, and also seeing uh, the effects of a more of slowing down in a way and how con- like conscious decisions can affect uh, on a mass scale can actually affect mm-hmm. um, the environment. So that for sure has been a trend in consumer behavior, as you said, I think that was already happening before. And this just really put a point on it mm-hmm. in a way that I think there are a lot of people who care and want to do the right thing, but maybe historically haven't known where to turn or where to start. And it felt like if they're not going all the way, then what does imperfect look like? And there are more and more options and more and more brands and uh, content to help them make conversations better choices. It's so interesting. I'm I'm excited to see what like the next five years look like for us. So I'm curious to know with all of the different hats that you wear as a founder of Parallel, what is your deeper active ingredient? What is like the thing that you're so excited to tackle or like put a fire out or whatever? Like what's the deeper reason why you're doing what you're doing? So that's a great question. And I think it's really important in general. For me, it was something that took me a beat to figure out how important mission it was to me as a founder. Mm-hmm. You know, in the outset, there was this idea of, you know, starting a business is in and of itself sort of a mission, right? And, and, and growing it, keeping it healthy. But uh, once we added in the layer of sustainability, for me, that just changed how I looked at my business and how I showed up every day um, and sort of the larger reason, the why. And I, no, I didn't even realize how much I needed that why um, until I had the answer. Um, and so that's very much sort of, in your words, like the active ingredient for me. And it was it was also that moment of connecting something that was important in my personal life to my professional life and sort of connecting dots 
uh, I didn't even realize how important that was until that was put in place. I feel like it gives you so much more longevity in what you're doing. Yeah. Like you could take it so far. And then when you add something like this to it, it just, you know, it, it, it can yeah. go on forever. And I think sometimes people think of, uh, you, you from the outside, it could look like if you narrow your scope that it's limiting, but in fact, I find it free because you look at every opportunity from a partnership, uh, brand, you know, whether it's, it's brand or marketing or operations, how we ship our products, how we deliver them to our consumer, who we, who sort of delivers our product, you know, all of that is looked at through the lens of sustainability. And I find it so freeing because you can be more creative within that mind frame. Otherwise you're like, okay, you're sitting there with so many choices and it can be overwhelming. Like paralyzed. Motivating. Yeah. yeah. It's the freedom within the framework that I feel like works for the most, for the most part. So this podcast, like I said, is also for the person who's kind of like in those in-between moments in life or is maybe reevaluating their career path. Um, and they may not even know what questions to ask themselves. Like you obviously went on this incredible trip and had this aha moment, but someone who's currently like sitting in it right now that like is, is really eager to work in it and work in what their, what their mission is or their passion or whatever, but doesn't even know what to ask themselves. What advice would you give to them? Yeah. So I think the first place to look is where do you gravitate in your free time or your downtime? Um, what sort of makes you happy or relaxed or motivated or stimulated, whatever it is, where you feel your best, like, what are you doing um, with that time? And there's often a string there. Um, you know, what, what articles do you gravitate towards? And um, it may often seem from the outside that so many people have this or that figured out, but in the end, no one really has any, everything. Everyone's always a work in progress. I don't think you'll find anyone who would honestly be able to say that they've got everything figured out and they're not still grappling with some aspects. But I think if you can find that key that sort of gets you excited, um, even if you don't know how to ultimately, if you want to sort of build your own business in that, you may have to spend some time being a sponge, but mm-hmm. finding finding people you admire or companies you admire that are that are within that space that gets you excited, you just can spend time learning and absorbing and you don't have to have all the answers right away. Sometimes you just need to take time to be in sponge mode and that's okay too. You, you know, that the rest can come later. I feel like sponge mode is also like the most fun mode. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like you got a little bit of everything. I love it. Exactly. So I always end the podcast asking a lighter question. What is your literal active ingredient? Is it coffee? Like what's something that you have to have, do, see, like work out to, whatever. What's something that you have to do that's non-negotiable every day? Uh, Dark chocolate. It has to be 90%. (laughs) And I hate 85 and I hate 95. It has to be 90%. Wait, what? If you did a blind test and you had all three of them, could you tell which one's which? Uh, my husband brought, apparently they were out of 90% and he brought back an 85 and I, and had the wrapper was off. I was like, what happened to my chocolate? It's just sort of CVS. But, and my co-founder knows I stash it in my, I have like stacks of it in my office. I have it at home. I have it. So I travel with it. Uh, not that I'm traveling anywhere right now, but, um, yeah, I have, uh, it's a, it's an addiction. I love it. Well, what's the brand? Like, what's your what's Lint. your go-to? It's like oh, the Lint. Lint. It's oh literally from CBS. Yeah. <laughs> they have like a stag on the shelf. <laughs> it was so funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Active ingredient is just dark chocolate. I love it. Yeah. Amazing. It. So where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find Paravel? Um, yeah. Let us know where we can go. 
Yeah, we're Paravel is tourparavel.com. Uh, Instagram, I'm at Indre Rock and Paravel's at Paravel. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Active Ingredient. Thank you. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. I had so much fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you can take two seconds of your time to rate and review us, it would really mean the world and help us out a ton. If you guys want more inspiration and quotes from the episode, you can check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.